This is the Read, Write, and Create podcast, the podcast where you get a bite-sized session of creative writing coaching from me, Lori L. Tharps. I'm an award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, a journalist, and a former college professor. I've spent more than 20 years writing, teaching, and coaching creative writers, and I created this podcast because I want to help as many BIPOC writers as possible get their stories out of their heads and into the world. Are you ready? Let's go. On episode 16 of the podcast, I am so honored to have Deneen Milner join me on the show. Deneen is such a powerhouse in the publishing world. Actually, if I read her complete bio, it would take up the entirety of the show because she has done so much as a writer, editor, and publisher. But just to give you a sample of what she's all about and her illustrious career, I'll begin. Deneen Milner is an author, editor, television and podcast host and journalist. She's authored more than 30 books, including six New York Times bestsellers. She is the creator and director of Deneen Milner Books, an imprint of Simon & Schuster and MyBrownBaby.com, a critically acclaimed blog that examines the intersection of parenting and race. Milner started her career as a reporter for the Associated Press and a political and entertainment reporter for the New York Daily News. She served as executive editor at Honey and articles editor at Parenting Magazine, where she later worked as a columnist. Milner has written and collaborated on over 30 books of fiction, nonfiction, and youth literature, including co-authoring the books Act Like a Lady, Think Like a Man, and Straight Talk, No Chaser with Steve Harvey. In 2016, Milner became an editor at Bolden Books with her own imprint, Deneen Milner Books. Three years later, Milner moved the imprint to Simon & Schuster. Deneen Milner Books publishes titles by African-American authors and illustrators for readers of all ages. Milner describes her imprint as, quote, a love letter to children of color who deserve to see their beauty and humanity in the most remarkable form of entertainment on the planet, books, unquote. On September 5th of 2023, Deneen's debut solo novel called One Blood was released to rave reviews. I mean, I tried to tell you, Deneen has done a lot. And during our interview, she walks us through how she went from being a journalist for newspapers to running her own imprint at Simon & Schuster. We talk about the blessings of being able to write across genres, but also what you have to do before you diversify your literary offerings. Deneen shares her secrets to being so damn prolific and productive, and she gets serious about how important it is for writers to take care of their bodies. Also, Deneen tells us about the role her literary community played in helping her get her novel One Blood out into the world. I'm telling you, I'm warning you, I'm promising you, you will be inspired and you should get ready to take notes because Deneen Milner is ready to school you. Welcome to the Read, Write, and Create podcast, Deneen Milner. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I am truly excited for myself, but I'm also really excited for our listeners because your career is so impressive. And I think that 
hearing your story and hearing how you did the things that you did is going to be very instructive for them. But before we get into unpacking your literary journey, I want you to tell everybody about your brand new debut novel, One Blood. Thank you. I'm so excited about One Blood. I've been describing it as my heart song. It's the first book out of 32 books that I've written that I'm actually writing by myself, the first adult novel. And so it is really some of, I think, the best writing that I've done in my career, and I'm excited about it. So um, One Blood is about three women connected through adoption. One who is the birth mother who has her baby taken away, the second who is the mother who raises that baby, and then the third, the baby as a mother and woman in her own right. And what these three women are trying to do is to learn how to live their lives fully in the way that they choose to live their lives, despite all of the different isms that kind of paint them into the box. And by isms, I mean racism, classism, colorism, sexism, all of those things just conspire to push them deep, deep, deep into the recesses of where they don't want to be. And they're trying their best to figure out how to be mothers and wives and women and friends in a way that they choose to be, despite that the world conspires to make them be something they don't necessarily want to be. It's a powerful novel. I've read it I don't even want to say I read it. I consumed it in like one binge, if you will, you know, using the terms of today. I literally binged the whole book, you know, reading each woman's story. It was so powerful. And I could spend the entire episode talking about it and asking you questions about it. But I'm just going to put it out there that People Magazine, People Magazine said that One Blood was one of the best books to read in September 2023. So if you don't believe me and you don't believe Deneen, because, you know, she wrote it, take the advice of People Magazine and get a copy of One Blood because I guarantee you it will move you. It will leave you just, it's the kind of book that leaves you literally like laying on your couch, like, wow, like you feel like a tidal wave washed over you because it's so full of emotion. And it's like an epic. It's like a black woman's epic story, even though it's three women, but it's still a epic story of Black womanhood in the United States. So kudos to you, Deneen. It is really a powerful book. And what a way to come out the gate. (laughs) Book number, what is it, 32? Yes, I'm so excited. Thank you so much for saying that because, you know, when you're a writer, you put your head down in your notebook or your computer and you just write your heart out. You spill it all over the page. And then the thing that you hope is that people will understand where you went with it, what you were trying to do. And so, you know, I can never tire of hearing people say that they understood what it was that I was trying to do and that they liked it. I mean, I think that's what every writer wants to hear, right? And so I'm excited about that. And yes, it is, you know, 32 books in, it is, um, it's my heart song. I also just want to mention to people listening, and yes, I'm bigging Deneen up because she deserves it, but it's not just People Magazine, me and Deneen, who think this book is powerful. Your book was translated like at publication. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, it was doing well in the U.S. after 10 years, so they decided to publish it in France. Tell the people, Deneen, tell the people what other countries One Blood is simultaneously coming out this fall and starting way back in the summer of 2023. Tell, tell the people where else it's being published and in what languages. 
It is published right now in German, French, in the UK, and here in America. And then it will be published as well in Spanish, in Hungary, in Japan, and China. Wow. Yes. So, okay. (laughs) Again, we'll have Deneen come back on another episode to talk about foreign rights, because that's a whole nother thing. But what I want you all listening to take away from that, because if you didn't pay attention, Deneen said that this is the story of three Black women. And once upon a time, they told us that nobody cares outside of the United States about Black stories, that if you write about Black people, you couldn't even put a Black person on the cover of your book much less expect a quote-unquote mainstream audience to want to read your book. And Deneen just told you, she just mentioned, I think, a country in almost every continent, right? So tell me just a little bit about how that makes you feel, Deneen, that your work is being solicited by people in other countries. You as a Black writer, you who has always been a Black writer and has been supporting Black literature. It's wild. You know, I'm sitting here and I'm looking at the four that came out and just seeing the covers and working with the publishers in other countries and having them tell me that they really like the story and then having their teams put together a package that speaks directly to their audiences in their countries. But is my story that's being presented to them is just nuts. It's nuts to talk to a foreign translator, you know, like a French translator, and she, you know, look at my words and turn them into gorgeous French and gorgeous Spanish and gorgeous German. It's something else. And each one of the books has so far of the four that have come out, each one has their own specific cover. Each one of them has their own specific flavor. Each team approached it from the perspective of what they thought their audience would like, but also what the translation meant for them. And so the covers are just fascinating to me. The French one is just one woman, but she has like all of these different colors to her. The German one is, a you know, this beautiful woman with a head wrap and all these gorgeous flowers. She looks like She looks like a piece of art. It really does look like a piece of art. And then One Blood in the UK has its own particular, it's like a face, but it's an illustration and not necessarily a real face. It's like an illustration of a face and it has all these interesting colors. It's just dope. Like It's amazing to see those different kinds of ideas of what they thought One Blood should be presented to the world. And then like to see the media in other countries glom into what I've done. Like I was on the cover of some magazine in Germany, which I'm just like, are you serious? Cause I can't even get like the New York times to like acknowledge my presence, but here I am on a cover in Germany. I think that's wrong and sad that you're in your own country. You're not getting the literary respect that you deserve, but As I sit here in Spain, I am so much more aware of how much bigger the world is. And I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't feel some kind of way that in your own country, your book isn't necessarily getting the media attention that it deserves. But also, I'm like, the world knows your name, Deneen. Like, 
okay, the world knows your name. Like some Hungarian person, okay? <laughs> a place you may never set foot in. It's like, oh, I love Denise Milner. She is so good. You know, like, like that's bananas, right? They're going to be talking about you in Japan? Like what else could you do to get that kind of immediate attention? And it's not negative. It's not like, oh, she went viral for some crazy thing she did online. No, your words are reaching people all over the world. You could just sit for a day and let that just soak in. It's crazy. But it seems very fitting for you because you've been in this game for so long. So let's tell the people how you started. I was thinking as I was thinking about how to unspin or unspool your story. I'm like, well, that's going to take hours. So I'm going to see if you could figure out how to like tell your literary journey, meaning I know you started your career as a journalist and now you're a, you have your own imprint at a major publisher. Could you tell us, you know, how you went from journalist to publisher with all of your in-between steps, but kind of like highlighting like What made you go to the next place? How did you pivot and keep changing and keep developing and keep evolving in this marketplace, especially as a Black woman when we're not supposed to be able to have that level of growth? Oh, my goodness. One of the things that I promised myself as a journalist or the whole reason I became a journalist was because I wanted to highlight Black folks in a way that in my generation, when I was younger, we didn't get to see all that often. We were still in a part of our media journey where Black people on the cover of the newspaper were usually being perp-walked across it, or they were bouncing a basketball, or they were some kind of celebrity who was in trouble, not necessarily for doing good things. And so it was still an event to sit down and watch a Black television show. And so, you know, like, I know I'm dating myself, but that was my reality. And so when I decided to become a journalist, it was with the idea that I would shine a light on the beauty and humanity of us. That was always my goal from age 17, when I got my first paycheck, for writing from Black Collegian Magazine, for writing some story for them, an assignment I got from being an intern at the National Association of Black Journalists Convention. So Black people have held me in the media space. And I've always made a point of training my pen and my lens, my computer, whatever thing that I'm using on us. And I was told very early in my career that I was making a huge mistake in doing that because people didn't respect or care about stories about Black people. And, you know, it was mostly white men telling me this, some Black people and, you know, white women telling me this. And I just never subscribed to that. I always felt like covering Black people was no different from covering, I don't know, the tech industry or doing the cop beat or covering fashion. It was like, it's my beat. My beat is Black people. And so that's what I want to do. So I walked into the Associated Press with the idea that I would learn how to be a journalist and also learn how to and enjoy writing about Black people. And that served me well as a news reporter, then as a political reporter for the Associated Press. And then my work that I did for the Associated Press, I was covering politics, but I was focused on 
telling Black stories. So I think one of the big stories that I did for the Associated Press was New York at the time under Governor Cuomo had a law in place that said that 20% of all contracts had to go to minorities and minorities air quotes, because that's what we call Black people back in the day. And I did a study of these rest stops up and down the New York State Thruway and found that less than 1% or something ridiculous were contracted by Black folks. And that became a huge story. And then I somehow found the men who were accused of killing Malcolm X and interviewed two of them for the Associated Press, and that became a big deal. And so the Daily News saw my work and they invited me to come and be a political reporter for them. And I went to the Daily News. I covered Giuliani, which was interesting in and of itself. Uh, And then because of the things that I was writing there, I got kicked out of the political bureau and shuffled into entertainment. (laughs) It was either write entertainment or don't have a job. Because Giuliani, literally, I got called to the main office and reamed out by the editors for the way that I was writing about Giuliani and almost lost my job. Oh, wow. They they were like, "Mm -mm, we can't have you doing this, you know, talking about the mayor like this or pitching stories like this or shining a light like this. And so they truly were like, you can either leave or you can go to entertainment. So I went to entertainment. And I covered Black people and entertainment. And, you know, like at the time, the Daily News was like the sixth largest newspaper in the country. And a good 75 to 80% of the people who read the newspaper, they didn't want to admit it, but they were people of color in a Black ass city, New York City. And so when I would write about Denzel Washington or Love Jones or Jay-Z or Donny Hathaway, People liked the stories because nobody else in the city was writing about the people that I was writing about. And Black folks wanted to hear about Jay-Z. They wanted to hear about Destiny's Child. They wanted to know who Wu-Tang Clan was. And you weren't going to get that in the Times. You weren't going to get it in the Post. You weren't going to get it in Newsday, really. There was a couple of people at Newsday who would write stories like that, but they were gone by the time I got to the Daily News Entertainment section. And so I just carved out a space for myself in mainstream media by being the person who covered Black folks. And how I got into writing books, I wrote a story one day for the section in the Daily News called Thursday. It was spelled T-H-E-R-S-D-A-Y. And it was like the women's section of the week on Thursday. And there was this book out called The Rules. And it was about, it was like these two white women who were telling women how to regress back to like the 1940s to figure out how to get a man. So it was like, you know, don't accept a date unless he asks you out three times or don't talk too much on a date because, you know, like nobody likes a chatty woman. And so I wrote this story basically saying that Black women would never be able to get a man with these rules because Black men would never go for it. And it was a cover story in Thursday. My editor at the time, her name was Orla Healy. She created this fake 
book, a mock book for the cover and had one of my coworkers, Nick Charles, pose in a Superman suit. And the book cover said, rules for the sisters, can black women find true love? And everybody thought that this was an actual book. So I come sauntering into work and I've got 14 messages on my voicemail 12 of them from women like, girl, I went to Barnes and Noble. I went to Walden Books. I done been everywhere looking for rules for the sisters. Where is it? And I'm like, what are these people talking about? So I look at, and I'm like, oh, these fools are looking at, they think this book is for real. And then the 12th came from an editor at Ms. Magazine who said, you know, like, we really like the way that you write. We'd love you to um, freelance for us. And then the 14th one was from an editor at William Morrow saying, I really love what you wrote. I think it's a book. Would you be interested in writing the black rules? And I was like, uh, yeah. And I had a book deal by three o'clock that afternoon. Wow. And an agent and a book deal and went off and, you know, had a month to write this book. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I had to, because they were trying to capitalize off of the heat that was on the rules, you know, it was on Oprah, like every five seconds and, you know, it was in all the newspapers and the magazines. And so they really wanted to capitalize off of that. So they gave me literally a month to write that book. And so I went on ahead and I wrote it, I think in two weeks, because like the first two weeks I was like eating Hagen dazs and watching Oprah. And then, <laughs> then it was like, oh, you got a book to write, fool, like get to it. And I wrote that book. And then all of the other books came after that. I switched from the Daily News to being an editor after the Daily News clowned me. I wanted to not write anymore. I wanted to be an editor. I felt like conceiving my stories, I had helped put Thursday, that section together. My editor went off to be a magazine editor somewhere. I think she went to InStyle. And so her position was open and I was like, this is natural. I'm writing the whole issue anyway. And I'm the one who is conceiving all of these cover stories. How about I be the editor and let somebody else do the hard work? And I'll never forget walking into that office and saying I wanted to throw my hat into the ring and the woman who was in charge at the time looking at me and saying, well, we're going to need a resume. I had been working there for eight years and she said, I need a resume. And so I was like, okay. So I went and I whipped up a resume and gave it to her and she literally held it like a, a dirty piece of tissue between her thumb and pointer finger and, you know, kind of waved it in my face and said, you don't have the experience and the know-how to be an editor. So, and she like literally laughed when she said it, like she laughed me out of her office. And so I knew I would never, ever progress at the daily news that the only thing they saw in me. And I, I don't know if it was because I chose deliberately to write about black people but the only thing they saw for me was to be just a reporter answering to all these people who knew nothing about the culture that I was covering, but you know were quick to accept the accolades when I would get on MSNBC and I would get on WBLS and Kiss FM and people were following my work at the magazines and all the other newspapers. And so I just, I needed to get out of there. I ended up being an editor at Honey Magazine and there, you know, I walked into the office and people really understood, you know, like there was a frame of reference that we all gathered around. We didn't have to explain ourselves. We didn't have to 
explain who Aaliyah was or who Erica Badu was or the importance of Donny Hathaway or the genius of Stevie Wonder. We all kind of, you know, that was a given. Our job was to shine a light on the beauty of young Black women and the culture that they reveled in and to create or to um, nurture young writers, which is something that I always loved. And so I worked at Honey and then the editor-in-chief went to be at People magazine and a whole bunch of people followed her. So I was like, "Uh, this feels like a sinking ship. Let me get the hell out of here. And I went to Parenting magazine. I had two young, young kids and I wanted really to know how to be a good mother to them. And so parenting just made sense to me. And plus they were paying me a whole bunch of money. And it was a big sort of switch from what I was doing in my career, but it was an interesting place to be. And I got to be the voice of Black mothers there and kind of, you know, explain to everyone that you can't just write about Black mothers in February as if that's the only time we raise kids. Like, (laughs) you know, like we raise our children with intention. We love them with abandon. And the way that we do that may be a little different from the way that you do, but that is worthy exploration. That's worthy of talking to. And so by the time I got to parenting, I think I I was on like book 10 or something like that. Um, I'd written a bunch of books with my ex-husband. I wrote a couple of books with two of my colleagues at Honey Magazine, Angela Burt Murray and Mitzi Miller. And I don't like calling them colleagues is just like a really rudimentary way of saying like, those are my home girl, like those are my girls. And we wrote two amazing books, one of which was The Vow, which was turned into a television movie, right? Called With the Ring. And then I worked at parenting for three years and just decided I don't get to see my kids in the way that I want to see my kids. I'm not raising them the way that I want to raise them. I can't afford to live here in New York City or we were living in New Jersey at the time. And so my husband at the time and I decided that moving somewhere where we could afford the lifestyle that we wanted to give our kids and I could actually have time to be the mother that I wanted to be, that it was a smart move. And I had enough connections in the industry and enough book deals under my belt and the energy and ideas to keep writing books that moving down South made sense. And so we moved to Georgia. And the second that I got here, I got an entree into writing for other people. I got here and I did a story for Essence, I believe it was. It was on NeNe Leakes and another woman, Lisa Wu from The Real Housewives of Atlanta. And Essence wanted me to write a story basically about their overcoming domestic violence And the story ran in essence, an editor saw that story, reached out to Nene Leakes to see if she wanted to write a book, a memoir. And she called me and she was like, girl, is this for real? Who is this lady? And I was like, oh no, it's for real. And that's a heavy hitter. It was Dawn Davis from, I believe she was at HarperCollins at the time. And Dawn pitched Nene Leakes a book and I ended up writing a proposal for Nene. She sold it to someone else. And then I ended up writing the book for her. And that gave me the entree into writing celebrity memoir. And at the same time, Andrea Pinckney, who is a legendary children's book editor at Scholastic, she had me ghostwriting children's books and then introduced me to writing YA. And Mitzi and I partnered and wrote some YA books. 
all of which happened because I was in Atlanta. They wanted a book series for teenagers that was like the Black Gossip Girls, and they wanted it to be set in Atlanta. So they were looking for an Atlanta writer. They reached out to Mitzi, and Mitzi was like, girl, you want to do this? Because they're looking for a writer in Atlanta. I was like, hell yeah. So (laughs) so I got that series because I was in Atlanta. And then that's how Steve Harvey ended up in my lap. Dawn Davis, who she had edited The Vow, she had thrown out this idea to NeNe Leakes. She came back to me and she was the one who was like, Steve Harvey's looking for an Atlanta-based writer for his books. Would you be interested in doing it? And I said, yes. And that's how I ended up writing the big books that opened the door for all of these other things. So, I mean, that is like a long-winded way of telling you how I kind of wound my way through journalism and magazine editing and into books. Well, I'm glad people could hear that. There was such a clear pattern in your story. It's almost like you're a butterfly being turned back into a caterpillar every stage of the game because you would find yourself someplace, learn as much as you can, hit a ceiling or hit a wall based on different circumstances, and then metamorphosize, come out as a butterfly and fly to the next spot and do your thing there. I think it's really important for people to hear that, that you took what you could at each place. You worked as hard as you could in each place. And also you kept your focus though. And that's the difference between bouncing around. Like you weren't bouncing around. You were very clear that at every stage of the game, you were going to do Deneen's thing. You were going to be telling stories about Black people, whether you're doing Black celebrities, whether you're doing Black parenting, whether you're doing Black entertainment, whether you're doing Black political stories. You are the through line. And it sounds like you also were building skills on top of each other as well. It wasn't just like, I mean, again, people listen. It's not like she was like, I was in the right place at the right time. I had no skills, but they just said, oh, she's in Atlanta. No, you had this background and these skills that you had built up that it was natural for somebody to say, because like this one story, they said, oh, you can do that kind of story. Do you think you could do this? Oh, you did this type of, do you think you could do this? It's almost like you can see the layers of your growth. That was exactly it. And just as much as people were telling me that focusing on Black people would be like my demise in the industry, people were also quick to say what you could and couldn't do. So like if you were writing for a newspaper, obviously you can't write for a magazine because that's long form. And if you wrote for a long form magazine, obviously you couldn't do radio because you're a writer. You can't really conduct yourself on a radio show or a television show. If you are writing for a newspaper or a magazine, you can't be an editor. Like what? There's a different skill set for an editor. You're working at a black cultural hip hop magazine for women. What does that have to do with parenting? (laughs) Right. And then parenting, what does that have to do with blogging? And then what does blogging have to do with writing books? And what does children's books have to do with YA? Picture books have to do with YA. And and how are you writing YA and writing celebrity memoir and writing novels and writing advice books and doing this, that, and the third? You know, I just hated when people tried to paint me into a box and say, this is the only thing that you're capable of, it would drive me nuts. And so I would be like, maybe for you, but not for me. (laughs) 
you know, it's funny because everybody that I bring on this show has had a long career. I mean, that's, you know, who I'm bringing on here because I want people to get their advice from people who actually know and are not just theorizing. But that's something that's actually been a very interesting through line from everybody who's been on is that nobody who's had a long career in the publishing and writing world has done one thing. They've all done multiple things. And yet so many times when emerging writers are going to like an MFA program or any kind of educational writing program, they're often told, choose one thing, do poetry, do fiction or do nonfiction. It's very rare where you're going to be able to get some quote unquote education where you're like, we're going to have you practice all three of those things. But what do you tell people who are like, oh my God, like I love fiction. I love nonfiction. I want to do it all. How do you advise them though to approach this idea that, again, you don't have to pigeonhole yourself, but maybe start here or maybe not. What's your thought about that when people say like, yeah, but I I don't want to do everything? Well, you have to be able to sort of get your entree on one thing, right? And focus on that one thing and do that one thing well. Like I started as a news reporter and a news reporter slash political reporter, slash entertainment reporter, but my job was as a journalist and figuring out how to find out what the facts were of the story to be able to determine beginning, middle, and end, to find experts, to figure out how to lay that story out in the genre that I was asked to write it in. I became an expert at that. And then after I became an expert at being a journalist, then I decided to be an editor. And after I became an expert at that, then I was okay with leaving that and going and being a freelancer. But only after I built this incredible ecosystem of editors who were willing to get me work in the different genres that I was able to write in. And so it's like, you have to master the one before you can start doing it all. At least I feel like you do. And so it's okay to be a poet and then write a novel. I hate, can I just caveat? I just hate poets who become authors, writers, novelists, because they write so beautifully. They irk my whole spirit. Spirit. They make my ass hurt. That's what my mother used to say when I was little. Like, you make my ass hurt. (laughs) They are just like, every time I read a poet's work as a long form writer, I'm just like, oh my goodness, what I do is not right. Let me just throw this computer across this wall and go down to Kroger and bag groceries or something because I just, I don't have a future in this thing. But, you know, like once you master the one, then you can move on to the other and you can study both at the same time. But people are going to ask you in the beginning to choose. Once you get your foot into the door with your choice and you master your choice, you can always then continue to build on the other choices that you want to make and then transition into those. But if you're getting your foot in the door, you need to focus on the one. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Switching gears just a little bit, You just gave us this great kind of timeline of how your career evolved. And you mentioned, you know, at this point, I think I had written X amount of books and then I wrote these books. But it sounds like you were often doing more than one thing at a time. And you didn't mention My Brown Baby, where you also launched an entire Black parenting blog slash website. I want to talk to you about time 
management in terms of juggling maybe a blog and your writing projects or something like writing a book in a very short amount of time and having two kids. And I think your girls are somewhat close in age. I mean, you had little kids for a while and there were two of them. So um, that's what I think so many writers struggle with because it's most of us don't get to go into our beautiful room and have quiet and someone brings us our food to us and everything else. You're maybe working another job entirely to pay the bills. What was your method for time management to get that work done? How did you manage that? I had a full-time job and three kids when I was writing the first 10 books because we, my ex-husband has a son with his first wife and he came to live with us when he was 14, when we moved down South. So I had two little babies, a full-time job. I would freelance still. In addition to writing for the Daily News, I would write for like Vibe and Essence and Ebony and magazines like that. And then I would go and do drops for MSNBC and CNN and VH1 was a huge thing. And then go home and feed my kids and sit down to dinner with them if I could, if I didn't get there too late, and then put them to bed and then get my computer or sit at the computer and write. If I had a deadline for a book or a deadline for a freelance article, I would sit down and write until I couldn't write anymore, go to sleep, and then wake up a little earlier than the girls and try and get that done. So it was a huge juggle. When we got down south, it was a little bit easier just because by then my kids were old enough to be in school. So I had like a chunk of time from like eight o'clock, 8.30 to about three that I could focus on whatever it was that I needed to focus on. And at the time I was divvying everything up in chunks. So it was like, I will spend two hours writing or reporting this freelance story. I will spend two hours researching or doing notes for this book. And then I will spend however much extra time I have getting some writing done or making phone calls or trying to get the next deal or getting the next freelance assignment. I was very organized in that kind of way. And to this day, I have a whole list of things that I have to do. I have every day I do something called top four now. And in top four, I put the four things that I must get done today. And if there are seven things that I need to get done, that's in another list, but I will take the top four off of that that must get done today. And I will methodically work through those top four until I'm finished. And then, you know, like I'll give myself now, I'll give myself some grace. Like after the four are done, I don't feel compelled to get to the other three things on the list because guess what? I worked through those four things and I'm nobody's slave. And my boss, as demanding and bitchy she can be, <laughs> Sometimes I just have to tell that heifer, listen, I'm tired and I'm going to stop now. So (laughs) so I'm much better today than I was when I was younger, but it's always been a list of things to do. When I was on deadline for my books, my kids, they were a little older. And so, I mean, I was pregnant with Mari when I was out on tour for like my second book or third book. So she was born and Lila was born into 
a working mother who needed quiet when it was time to write, who would be away to go and do book signings and such. And if I could bring them, I would. But if I couldn't, then they knew that mommy was going to go away, but she would be back. And just figuring out how to juggle the kids, the husband, the freelance, the work that I created for myself with my brown baby, which in the beginning was an effort of love and just sort of a desire to create a space for Black mothers to talk about Black children, but eventually grew into like this business that sustained me and my family for a couple of those hard years where, you know, like I didn't get a book deal. You know, learning how to juggle that really was about organization. And then writing books with celebrities, those deadlines could be killer. Like, you know, the two books that I wrote with Steve Harvey, I wrote the first one, Act Like a Lady, Think Like a Man, we wrote in six weeks. The second one we wrote in like three months or something like that. Something, I don't even think it was three months. It was more like two months, something like that. Getting that done was no joke. And it required me to just, I I did Nina Leakes' book in 28 days. With that crazy woman, I did that book in 28 days. And when I say 28 days, I mean interviewing her, writing the chapter, giving it to her to edit, her giving it back to me, me making the changes, the edits, and then giving it back to her and going through that whole process until we had a whole book in 28 days. That is not something that is for the faint of heart or normal. You know what? Let me just pause you there for a second because I don't know if you can answer this question, but I really like to get into mindset with writers because you can tell someone, be organized. You can tell someone, you got to get up early and stay up late or do this, do that. But there's really got to be an understanding of what kind of mindset because writing is so full of disappointments. It's full of, you know, nobody can do it for you. If you've got to write this story, this book, guess what? You have to write it. And again, there would be even more writers in this world if more people could master the mindset that's required for this very interesting work. What do you think is your secret to success? I hate to sound so cliche, but what do you think it is in your mind, like in your personality that allows you to make this happen? This is my job, right? Like it's not just something that I love to do. I do love writing. I love storytelling. I love being able to put words on a page. I love being able to do that in the comfort of my home in a notebook or a computer. There are people who feel like writing is, you know, like just the dream. It's the dream job to be able to just sit and think and pontificate on specific things and then write pretty flowery words on your computer. This is my job. This is how I put food in the refrigerator. This is how I pay tuition. This is how I pay my mortgage and my car note. This is how I make sure that my dad is taken care of. And when you have a job with responsibilities, you do your job and you do your job well. And I I like really pretty nice things. (laughs) I do. (laughs) I'm not even going to lie. I do. And so, you know, I have to do my job and I have to excel at my job, not because I have some kind of big ego that requires, you know, like me to be front and center of attention and have accolades and people clapping for me. Actually, I'm an introvert. I don't like 
being in front of people. I don't like standing in front of crowds. I do it. And when I'm doing it, it looks like it's fun for me and natural for me. And that being on a stage is what is great for Deneen, but I really do hate it. But I do it because it is a part of my job. And this is my work. I approach my work no different from the work ethic that my dad had being a a mechanic at Intamins or the work ethic my mom had when she was quality control at Estee Lauder. This is my job and I'm supposed to do it well. Simple as that. It is simple as that, isn't it? I think a lot of times writers and a lot of artists, I would assume, but I know writers, you know, we think of this as a vocation, as a dream, as a passion. And, you know, passions don't pay bills. (laughs) Dreams don't pay bills. And so we're thinking about it wrong because if you do want to do it, I mean, Deneen is perfect proof that you can make a living as a writer. I mean, and Deneen is certainly not the only one. She is not a unicorn in the desert, but she looks at this as her job. So she takes it that seriously. And, you know, she has a boss who's very serious, (laughs) but she understands that if she's going to eat and pay her mortgage and her bills and send her kids to college, that she has to show up. There is no option. And I think that's what people often get wrong about writing is that like, oh, I don't know if I have the time to or I don't know if I can find the time to or whatever it is. If you want it to be serious, if you want the writing to sustain you, then you have to treat it like a job because that's what it is. I'm curious, Deneen, like on this podcast, I often talk about our literary ancestors because there's so much we can learn from them and the way they organize their lives and particularly our literary ancestors of color Whatever struggles we're going through right now, they struggled harder. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you think your struggles are. They struggled harder. It just is a fact. And I'm just wondering, is there anybody, is there an author, a literary ancestor that you look up to or model your life after or are inspired by? Oh, goodness. There's so many. (laughs) I love Zora Neale Hurston because she was dedicated to shining a light on our lives and not just the kind of light that everybody wanted or expected her to shine a light on. Like she went down South and she shone her light on the people who society forgot, who black people in very particular positions decided were not important or were embarrassing in some kind of way, or who didn't deserve a light because they didn't do the spectacular things that they did in the places that they did them. And so I really, really, really you know, love that dedication that she had to shining a light on Black people in our entirety, not just what we thought we should show. She showed what was beautiful about the things that people didn't necessarily want to see or didn't think it was important to see. She showed the importance of those things. So I'm hoping that my work is following in those footsteps. I love Toni Morrison, and I know that sounds super cliche, but I love her because she's unapologetic about saying, I'm writing for Black people, and I'm writing about Black people, and I really don't give a good goddamn (laughs) what you think about that. If you think that I should be writing about white people in some kind of way or making this accessible to white people, I'm writing for Black people. 
And you all are invited to come along for the ride and look at what I'm doing and figure it out and use that as whatever reference point you need to use for whatever it is that you're trying to do. But here's what I'm doing. I'm writing for Black people about Black people. And I love that because, you know, for the longest time, I was told that that was just not the wise thing to do. And here is Toni Morrison coming along and saying, oh, no, absolutely, that's the right thing to do. So she's someone that I love. And then, like, I'll say, like, I really, really, really loved, and I know this is going to be left field, but the voices of the New York City columnists from back in the day, like the Jimmy Breslins and the Pete Hamels, the Dennis Hamels. Oh, I love Pete Hamill. Oh, my goodness. The way that they just told a story, the way that they were dedicated to turning things on their underbelly and just really exposing those underbellies to readers so that they could understand the importance. It was very much like a Zora Neale Hurston kind of way of looking at New York City. And Zora had her voice. Tony had her voice. These men had their voices. And they were very distinctly New York. And I grew up as a journalist in the tutelage or in the the shadow of those men. And they were the ones who I fashioned my writing after. They were the ones whose voices I just loved. And I wanted a specific voice too. I wanted you, when you opened up a story in the Daily News, I wanted you to know from the lead that it was Deneen, without looking at the byline, that Deneen wrote it. Because that's how Pete Hamill's work read. That's how Jimmy Breslin's work read. And so I really, those are ancestors that I pay homage to too, because they were the ones who literally raised my voice. They're the ones who convinced me that it wasn't enough to just go in and report the story and then write the facts, that you had to have some swagger about you. Thank you for bringing it up because usually everybody says Toni Morrison, Zornel Hurston. Understandably, I don't think there's anything. I mean, it just, of course, they are are like fairy godmothers in this world. But it's great to hear those New York, I think of like gruff voiced journalists. You know, that's what I wanted when I thought about being a journalist. Those were the guys. Right. And, you know. So that's great. I love that. And speaking of, you know, along those lines, another thing that I would like to ask people, did you at any point, do you now have your own writing group or writing community? That's something that we're focusing on in this season is community for writers, particularly Black writers and other writers of color, because our experiences in the publishing industry are unique and our experiences in this world are unique. And I think that having a writing community or a writing group can be fundamental to be a successful writer. Do you have a writer's group? Did you at any point in your career? And what part did they play for you in your journey? I've never been in a writing group before, but I do have some literary sisters, sisters who also write that I lean on and they lean on me as we're creating Two who come specifically to mind are Ida Harris. She's the head of something or other at Black Enterprise. She's the one who is responsible for all of the storytelling over there. She's a big wig over there, but she also is an incredible writer, an incredible 
incredible writer. When I met Ida, she was in grad school and doing hair (laughs) and trying to, you know, right? Like she was doing hair, but she was super creative. She was making dolls and she was painting. And then one day while she was doing my hair, she showed me her writing. And I was like, yo, bro, oh my God, like your voice is nuts. Are you serious right now? So she's an incredible writer. She is super well-read. She's one of those people who like doesn't have a TV because she's always reading and she just sits and reads all day. Like her free time is in a book. And she she was one of the people that I was funneling my pages to. I was funneling One Blood to, and she was the one who was saying, keep going. This is the blackest shit I've ever read in my life. People are not going to be ready for this. Do it. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Um, and then the other person that I count as a literary sister, but also a really dear friend is Karen Goodmarable. She is a legendary writer who wrote back Back in the day for Vibe and Essence and Ebony. Now she's writing for The Bitter Southerner and so many different incredible places. If you just Google Karen Good Marable or Karen, I think she goes by Karen Good Marable now, but back in the day it was Karen Good. And she just has this voice about her, this way of laying a word down on a page, extremely well-read, extremely well-studied, and extremely encouraging. And so, you know, she would be the one who would press podcasts into my phone and say, you know, you should really listen to what this person had to say about this book, or this person was reviewing that book, or she would send me articles in magazines and in online spaces about writing, just the craft and the people who were doing it well. And those were the literary heavy hitters that she was putting in my lap and saying, study them because you are going to be running with these people and you need to see how they were doing it so that you could see how you're going to do it. So I'm deeply grateful. And she was reading early pages and just like, yeah, I really like where this is going. And she was the one who was like, you know, print out those 44 pages that, you know, like got you your book deal. And I want you to put them on your altar and write, this is sacred on it because what you're doing is sacred. And just when you approach it in that regard, then you can't make light of this. You have to keep going. And so that's what I did. I created an altar. I printed out the 44 pages. I wrote, this is sacred. And I wrote the name of my mother on top of it. And I wrote the name of who I thought at the time was my birth mother. And I put it on those pages on my altar and boy, did it make me fly. And so these women are the women who sort of wrapped their arms around me and said, you can do this. So I didn't have a formal network of people, but I can count on my friends to give me what I need. And I, again, I'm just pulling that out for our listeners, how important it is to have your, I mean, your literary community doesn't have to be, you know, something that has a Facebook group or, you know, you got the t-shirts and the mug, but Deneen has those in her life. And what did they do for her? They provided feedback. They read her pages. They inspired her. They told her, don't stop. Like all of the things that you cannot do for yourself as a writer. That is why I keep talking about community. And I will continue to talk about community this season because, yeah, you need your space. You need your quiet. You need your discipline. 
But on the other side of that, look at all of the benefits Deneen got from her friends who are writers and readers themselves. They told her what to read. They could tell her and she would listen to them as well because she knows where they're coming from. So that's what I mean by making sure that you have, she tells them her literary sisters, you need to have your literary sisterhood, brothers, you know, whatever these people are to you, but you need to have them in place because the worst thing that can happen, and this has happened to me, especially since I moved to Spain and I removed myself from my literary community, is like you're writing and maybe you fall off or maybe you get discouraged and there's nobody there to tell you to get back up and you can do it. Or you've written and you're like, I need somebody to read this. Like, I can't read it again. I need feedback. There's nothing worse for a writer to have something that needs to be read. Nobody can give you feedback. Your project stalls and it's like falling off the wagon. So having those people in your life that are on speed dial That's why you need your literary tribe, your literary community. You need them in place. So I again, that's the focus of this season of the podcast, because I want people to really think about being intentional about cultivating some sort of literary community for themselves. Absolutely. Amen. And that's the other thing. That's what I, um, the last question I'm going to ask you, because you've had this super long career. We talked about community. We talked about the kind of nuts and bolts of how you made these things happen. Last question for you is, do you do anything physical to help your body stay in shape? Because very few podcasts about writing spend time talking about what your exercise routine is. And I don't mean like, do you jog? Like, you know, I mean, do you do things to keep your body in shape? Because if you're turning out books in a month, girl, backs, shoulders, necks, carpal tunnels. Thank you for saying it. You have absolutely no idea how hard it is and what it does to your body to work like that. I wear glasses right now and I can barely freaking see because I am constantly in a computer. I am constantly in a book. I am constantly on my phone and not to like scroll Instagram. Like it's my job to stare at a computer. It's my job to stare at a book. It's my job as I'm a publisher. I have to look at artwork. I have to constantly edit. I'm constantly looking at manuscripts, reading them on the computer. You know, one book gets read six times. So if that book is 400 pages, it gets read six times, not for fun, but to look for mistakes and to make sure that every word is and every comma is in its place. And writing a book in six weeks requires me to ignore my kids. It requires me to not eat right. It requires me to be sitting at my computer for hours and hours and hours on end with carpal tunnel hunched over. I have issues with five of the discs in my neck because of the way that I hunch over, over a computer or a laptop. I have carpal tunnel in both wrists. It is no joke. And so I'll be 55 in October. I have to get up from the computer. I have to take breaks. I have to give my eyes a rest. I have to be clear about my posture. I have to go and get massages. That's not for me to like go and flex and be like, oh girl, just go ahead and work that knot out. Like, no, I have to have 
massages. At some point I was doing medical Pilates to like get my posture correct, to strengthen my core and my back and my butt and learn how to walk properly and learn how to sit properly while I'm writing so that I won't further damage the vertebrae in my neck that I've ruined from hunching over. Even while we were sitting here talking, I felt myself hunching over like this. And I I saw myself in the screen and I like purposely did like this because, you know, it's natural for me to just hunch over like this. And so I get massages. At some point I was doing medical Pilates. I had to stop that because the pandemic came and then sis went and had two babies and got married and now she's not doing it anymore. I want her to go ahead and raise these babies so we can get back to it. I I work out at least five times a week. I do strength training just because I'm keeping it a buck. I'm going through menopause and to keep all of the symptoms at bay, or at least a lot of them at bay, strength training has been a godsend for me. Working out has been a godsend for me. I do strength training three times a week and I do like a hit class two to three times a week. They be trying to kill me up in there. I walk away like, you know, like somebody just beat my whole body with a hammer, but I wake up the next morning and I feel stronger so that I can sit at this computer and do what I need to do. And then another exercise that's deeply important to me is just taking an art. So it's going out to the museum or going and just touring murals around Atlanta. I live in Atlanta and there's like the city is full of murals or walking the Beltline and seeing artwork that way. Going to art galleries and seeing art. I love art. So some people will spend their money on red bottoms or, you know, Birkin bags. I spend my money on artwork, you know, so I like to go out and see what people are doing and really kind of examining what they were trying to say when they made that art, because that then inspires me and my art. And so, you know, like that's an exercise. And then like going out with my friends and just enjoying a concert or going to a park tonight, three of my friends are going out. We're going to some kind of midnight market or something where there's going to just be food vendors and bars and different people selling things, art and such. And we're just going to go out and just sort of see how other people combine art with their work and just be fulfilled by that. You know, that's an exercise for me. Listening to music is an exercise for me. I fell in love with the written word looking at lyrics on the the liner notes of albums, specifically Music of My Mind, Stevie Wonder, Superwoman, trying to figure out what he was talking about in that song and looking at the words is what made me understand that people could convey emotion, not just through the music, but specifically the words. And that's what made me fall in love with the written word. So I'm constantly listening to music and trying to hear what the youngins are talking about and you know, appreciating what the legends have talked about. In my next life, I'm going to be a DJ, but right now, you know, <laughs> I really, I really love what music, how music moves me. That's an exercise in and of itself to like be in my kitchen, cooking a good dinner for me and my daughter and just really listening to music and really understanding what they're trying to convey and feeling it deep in my gut. Like that's what I want my words to do for people when they read my books. Oh, gosh. 
So I'm going to have to put all of this in the show notes, like lessons from Deneen, because what you just said right there, you know, you got to take care of your physical self, obviously, but this is also part of taking care of yourself, listening to music, seeing art, just going out, being social, because writers, we can't get our ideas from an empty vessel. You cannot be inspired I mean, maybe you can sitting in your living room. I'm not going to knock it. Some people got that kind of interior life. But for the most part, we have to feed our creative selves with creativity. And I'm trying to help as many BIPOC writers as possible get their stories out into the world and to nurture a community of BIPOC writers. And it's not just, you know, how do I craft a beautiful sentence? Like, that's not going to get you the career. Right. Maybe that's going to get you a beautiful sentence. But if you want the career, if you want to write 32 books like Deneen Milner and have your books come out and be picked up and translated into 17,000 languages, you've got to live the whole life, the whole life. Deneen, you have given us so much wonderful inspiration and information. Honestly, I need to have you back, though, because there's like seven things I want to deep dive onto. <laughs> so maybe you can be our first like repeat guest, right? You know, I'm with you. Um, <laughs> Just let me know I'm there. We didn't even talk about your publishing imprint. Like, that's what I mean. I got to bring you back. We'll talk about how to run your own imprint. That's going to be... <laughs> Volume two with Deneen Milner, how to run your own imprint. I'm ready when you are. Awesome. So thank you so much, Deneen. Before I let you go, though, can you please tell everybody where they can, let's see, find One Blood, find you, find your imprint, because Deneen is publishing some of the best books for young people, honestly. So tell the people where they can find all the things you do. Yes. So you can find all the things that I do on DeneenMilner.com, D-E-N-E-N-E, M like Mary, I-L-L-N like Nancy, E-R.com. I'm also on social media at My Brown Baby, pretty much everywhere. On Facebook, it's Deneen Milner. I'm mostly active on Instagram and sometimes Facebook. And you can buy One Blood anywhere books are sold. Including France and Germany. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and you can look at the imprint. You can go to DeneenMilnerBooks.com to see all of the books that I'm publishing through Deneen Milner Books and all of the incredible specifically Black writers and illustrators. I thought it was important to focus on them because the gatekeeping for Black creators in the children's book industry was pretty blasphemous back even in as recently as 2016 when I started the imprint. It's gotten much better, but it can be much better. So, you know, Denise Milner Books focuses specifically on Black authors and Black illustrators. And so we've created these incredible books that focus on the everyday humanity of Black children and families, written by Black authors, illustrated by Black illustrators. DeneenMilnerBooks.com. And all of the links for Deneen's stuff is going to be in the show notes. Deneen, thank you so much. And, you know, keep your email open because I will be inviting you back on the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right. I hope my conversation with Deneen left you inspired and motivated to write. I hope you feel a deeper connection and commitment to your literary projects and practice. Here are some key takeaways from Deneen. I hope you will apply to your own writing life. Number one, 
organization is the key to having a productive and prolific literary life. It's that simple and that basic. Number two, if you want writing to sustain you financially, then you have to treat it like a job. Show up every day and get to work. Number three, if you don't take care of your body, it won't survive the stress of the writing life. Don't wait until you're hurt to invest in massages, exercises, and regular doctor visits. Number four, feeding your creativity should be part of your wellness plan. Go look at some art, listen to music, take long walks in nature. Writers need to feed their imagination on a regular basis to stay inspired. And number five, writing about your people, your community, can be your calling card to success. Don't let the man tell you differently. All right, that's it. I really do hope you apply some of these lessons from Deneen to your own writing practice and find yourself as prolific and productive as she is. The Read, Write, and Create podcast is produced by me, Lori L. Tharps. Our editor is Brad Linder, and our theme music is by Wattaboy. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single inspiring episode of the show. If you're looking for more creative writing inspiration, writing prompts, and useful resources for your literary life, be sure to check out all of the amazing content on the Read, Write, and Create website. That's at readwriteandcreate.com. While you're there, you can also sign up for my Read, Write, and Create bi-monthly newsletter, which is the first place where you'll find information about my latest classes and creative offerings. You'll also be able to find my links to my social media accounts, where I mostly hang out on Instagram at Lori L. Tharps, but we also have a new Instagram account that is simply Read, Write, and C-R-E and the number eight. So get it? It's Read, Write, and Create. Finally, if you know any BIPOC writers who might need a creative pep talk, please share this show with them. You can tell them that this is a show that you love and that brings value to your writing life. And now you can also tell them that our show was nominated by the Black Podcasting Awards in the category of Best Literary Podcast. So it's not just me saying it's a great show. It's not just you saying it's a great show. But the Black Podcasting Awards Committee, which is made up of professional podcasters, also say it's a great show. So tell your friends, tell your friends, friends, tell your favorite writers about our podcast. I appreciate it so very much. And if you can't tell anybody about it, you can also simply leave a rating or a review or both on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Whatever you can do to help spread the word, I am extremely grateful. So thank you. Now, of course, I'll be back in two weeks on Monday. Until then, keep writing. <laughs>